You're listening to Statues and Stories with Adam Levinson, Ed Vidal, and myself. It's a wonderful segue after the Concrete Conservative on Monday. You can always listen to us here on WSQF 94.5 from 7 to 8. And sometimes we like to string Adam out to try to get 8.30 in, maybe 9 o'clock, if we can kind of confuse him and get him to elaborate further. But today we're going to take a walking tour, radio walking tour, as Adam said, to an, an incredible exhibit that will be uh, at Nova Southeastern University. Adam, how are you? I'm doing well. Good evening, everybody. And I'm going to joke with everyone, and this is true, that this is experimental radio that we're going to do. Albert Einstein would call it a thought experiment. We're going to walk through. If everybody, I'm joking, doesn't need to close their eyes, but we're going to imagine walking into the Cortilla Gallery. What is the Cortilla Gallery? And the answer is it's on the second floor of NSU, which is Nova Southeastern University's Alfred Sherman Library, which is a beautiful building, which is in the center of the university. And we have this phenomenal phenomenal exhibit, which is the Alexander Hamilton exhibit, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to walk through tonight the books and the maps and the newspapers and the historical artifacts that we have in this exhibit. These are museum-quality pieces that have never been exhibited. The vast majority of them have never been exhibited in Florida before. In fact, one of the main items in the exhibit is one of Hamilton's personal books that we'll talk into great detail about the book, uh, So, we're gonna, which has only been exhibited on the, in the Museum of Finance in, in Wall Street in New York. That's the only place it's ever been shown to the public. So a phenomenal exhibit, which opens many. When is it? It opens March the 17th. At 2 p.m., Adam will be giving a lecture. Yes. That's right. So this is the grand opening of the exhibit. The exhibit will run for a month. So it's easy to remember the date, which is St. Patty's Day. So it is St. Patty's Day at 2 o'clock, which is when we do the presentation. And refreshments, I'm joking with everyone, are on me, so uh, feel free to enjoy the refreshments. And then later in the day, later in the evening, people can do more adult beverages. But you can at least I think part. Ed's going to bring a flask, I have a feeling. No, no. No, 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 no. I'm from the University of Chicago. I'm an attorney. I would never do that. I know. I've heard this already. Okay, Adam, go ahead. Let us... So Again, we're setting the stage for this exhibit, which is opening next week on uh, this coming Sunday. So it's, this is the Statutes and Stories uh, exhibit, which is done in coordination with, and the date again is March 17th. It's being done and co-presented, if you will, with the Gilder Lehman Institute, which is also out of New York. The Gilder Lehman Group yep. has a panel with all kinds of information about Alexander Hamilton. We also have the Alexander Hamilton, you've heard me mention it over the, the last several months, the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society. That's the AHA Society, so everyone gets to say it correctly, and I, I like to say that it's not the AHA Society, it's the AHA Society, the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society, so they're, they're working with us, and this is a, a phenomenal exhibit which has never been done before in Florida. So tonight, the plan is to walk everyone through it, and instead of me doing an hour, so I'm going to disappoint you, but you're going to get a pleasant surprise, I'm going to cut off at around 6.45, and we're going to have artists, and he's on the phone in Boston, so he'll be calling in at 6.45. I'm sorry, at uh, 7.45, and you've heard me talk about him before. This is my good friend, David Wells-Roth, and he is the artist who is a Revolutionary War specialist, and that's not all he does, but he's going to be talking about his Revolutionary War art, because as we walk into this exhibit, if we just had newspapers and books, 
in an art exhibit because that's what this museum is. It's a it's the gallery's an art gallery. Uh, that would not be visually striking. So we had to decide how do we curate it to bring life to these old books, and we're going to go into great detail about the Stamp Act and some of the other books that we have. So in order to cover the walls in this beautiful gallery, we reached out to David, and uh, everyone will remember that David is the artist who was commissioned to paint the Revolutionary War pictures around the Union Oyster House. And we may remember that the Union Oyster House is on the Freedom Trail in Boston. The Union Oyster House is where the Sons of Liberty go back to the 1773 and the Boston Tea Party, 1774, 1775. Where they conspired against the British. That's these tax protests. So uh, who was the printer who had his office in the Union Oyster House before it was a restaurant? And the answer is Isaiah Thomas. So we're going to have Boston artist, which is David Wells Roth, talk about in great detail because he is an expert. He is one of the foremost experts on the Patriot publisher, Isaiah Thomas. And the post office did a stamp on him uh, sometime around uh, 1976 in that ballpark and did a stamp on him because he was, and David will go into great detail, he was the foremost, next to Benjamin Franklin, and one of the, the leading publishers of his day. And some of you are going to say, well, why is it that you're doing this exhibit on Alexander Hamilton? Why do you have Revolutionary War art from Boston? And why? how does that connect to Isaiah Thomas, the printer? So everyone is asking themselves that question. What's that connection between Isaiah Thomas, the printer, and Alexander Hamilton? Either of you want to take a stab at it. What's the connection between Thomas and Hamilton? God, uh, other than the fact that Alexander Hamilton wrote so much. Exactly, Manny. Perfect. That's exactly right. So I'm going to making the, be making the analogy that Hamilton, and I'm quoting now from from one of my favorite historians. I like to quote him all the time from Joseph Ellis, and also we'll be talking about some quotes from Arthur Schlesinger. So Joseph Ellis refers to, and Chernow, I think this is Chernow, let me get right. my historians right, Ron Chernow, who wrote the biography of, of, um, of, Chernow, of Chernow, I'm sorry, Ron Chernow, Chernow writes the biography of Alexander Hamilton, which is used as the basis for the musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda. So Ron Chernow refers to Hamilton as the foremost pamphleteer in American history. And why is he the foremost pamphleteer? Because at every important moment in early American history, he had the guts. His writing. He had the guts to circulate. But where do those publications get printed? And where? Who? You know, how do you get to see Hamilton's letters and his? pieces? And the answer is, it's Isaiah Thomas in Boston, who is the leading publisher. And just to go back a little bit, the first time that Hamilton, and it was one of the songs from the musical, uh, the first time that young Alexander Hamilton writes and gets published was he writes about the hurricane that hit the island of St. Croix and Nevis, where he was born and where he grew up. And that that article that he wrote, which gets published all around the colonies, was carried in the newspaper, and David will go into detail talking about uh, that newspaper. So let me stop talking about Isaiah Thomas. I just uh, warm the field for you, because that's what David will discuss at 745. But what I want to do with everybody is you've parked at the big central parking lot at Nova Southeastern University, and you, you drive past, depending on which direction you're coming from, you drive past the Dolphin Training Ground, and you come into Nova, and uh, you, after you leave the parking garage, you walk into the big Alfred Sherman Library, you walk through the doors, and then you have a choice to go up the elevator, or you can, there's a beautiful marble set of stairs that take you into the main entrance, and it is on the second floor of the Cortilla Gallery. So why are people traveling from really all around the country? And you guys are coming in, so if anyone wants to meet Manny and Ed and, and some of your other uh, colleagues and uh, experts who work with the radio station, including those who, uh, the, we've got people from the founding generation, descendants of the founding fathers who are going to be present. So it's a phenomenal group with 
uh, artists and historians and law professors. It's going to be a phenomenal group of, not to say that law professors and lawyers, um, you know, we're going to be a, a good call. Oh, I get it, I get it, I get it. Okay. So, uh, but uh, it's going to be a phenomenal group of people who are history lovers. So as people head into the exhibit hall on the second floor, which is the Cortilla Gallery, uh, what are you going to see? And the answer is we start with continental maps, because where did Alexander Hamilton come from? And that's the question. Where, where, where's his background? St. Nevis. Uh, St. Nevis. Caribbean. Uh, in, in the Caribbean. So where should we start the exhibit? With a map of where? The Caribbean Sea. There you go. So we islands. were able to reach out to, I have friends in the antiquaries, I'm an antiquarian book collector, so uh, one of the other experts uh, who will be participating with the exhibit is our, our good bookseller. His name is uh, William Croissant, mm -hmm. and uh, William has a phenomenal bookstore. Uh, where really, he sells more. In fact, most of his sales are Internet sales, but he was nice enough to lend us, so we're curating uh, these maps that he has. He has old antiquarian books mm -hmm. and maps, so we're going to have uh, a map that would have been used at the time of Thomas Jefferson because it doesn't have a Louisiana Purchase on it, uh, but he also has maps of the Caribbean, so we're going to have all kinds of wonderful maps when you walk in, and things will look a lot different in these maps than they do today, A, because the political boundaries were very different, and B, they had not yet fully understood the geography. So when you see Florida and the Caribbean on some of these maps, the proportions are all wrong, and the, the shape of Florida is all wrong, but nevertheless, the beautiful maps to look at. So that's what you're first going to see when you walk into the gallery. You know, in those yeah. days, um, Adam, those some of those uh, islands, were the some of the wealthiest places on earth because the rum was worth so much and the sugar it was really you know, I'm valuable pick up on that point because it's an excellent point one of the books that we have and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about mercantilism and the economics behind the British and the Dutch theory of, of economics and, and how the, uh, the economic systems back then this is before you got into free market capitalism <clears throat> so one of the books that we're going to have on display is the molasses act of 1733 how often listeners do you get to see books these are acts of Parliament dating back you know almost 300 years and uh, the answer is that's one of the important books, one of the first books that's going to be on display, because these these islands, and they were slave colonies, but these islands, and we can you'll see them on the map, is where that very important sugar was being grown, and that sugar was then converted into molasses as part of that triangular trade uh, from the colonies into Africa. So that's where that trade was taking place, and that's one of the acts that we're going to have on display. And that's why, by the way, some of these islands were very wealthy, and that's why Charleston, South Carolina, at the time of the revolution was a lot wealthier than New York City. Uh, but the, we won't talk about the economics today. We're just doing the, the layout of the exhibit. So we have the maps of the Caribbean, because that's where Alexander Hamilton came from. And we talked about how Alexander Hamilton came to America as a orphan and asked David about some connections between Alexander Hamilton and Isaiah Thomas. So just to give you a hint, as Isaiah Thomas, you'll learn about him, but Alexander Hamilton was effectively an orphan because his mother died when he was a young kid, and his father was absent from the scene. His father had run off, so uh, Hamilton well, was able to get a Did that make wait. him uh, an illegitimate child? Well, wait, 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 wait. There, he no. was not formally illegitimate, but I have read that the merchant who later took him under his wing and sent him to New York because his father had run off and his mother had died, the merchant was actually his natural father. Oh, my God. There you are, Manny. Whoa, I wanted to know that. Nothing so, wrong with that. Yeah, wow. But the merchant took him and sent him to King's College in New York, which is now so Columbia what, what University. So what was the tie that it was his natural father? His natural father was a his natural father was a local merchant, and his, but he had uh, the Alexander, one that ran off was the one who uh, basically raised was, him. Was, oh. No, the one who ran off was the husband of oh, his the, mother. 
Also, the natural mothers would save his life, Ch- change the, that famous uh, six you, degrees of separation. There you go, Manny. I know, wow. you, you don't, you know you, now you have more to think about when you think about Hamilton. Wow, I, I'm just so fascinated. I the, can't you know, believe those it. small island societies. There wasn't much to do. I knew know. there was something that tied me to Hamilton. Absolutely. A small island. Yes. Okay, go ahead, Adam. So, uh, I just want to give more of the historical context, and I'm not disagreeing with it, but uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm very familiar with a lot of the primary sources. <laughs> and here I should mention Statutes and Stories, which is our website, and we post all about these uh, legal sources and these uh, laws, and that's what we do with the website. But uh, when you read Chernow's biography, and I've read several biographies of, of Alexander Hamilton. And of course, we don't have DNA tests that we can test. Alex. Really? Yeah, really. But uh, nevertheless, there are all kinds of theories that circulate in different communities claim him, depending on who you ask. They'll tell you that Alexander Hamilton was from X group or Y group. But um, <laughs> just so we know some of his background, his the, the father, who I believe was his father, according to most historians, was James Hamilton, who was Scottish. That's where the Hamilton name comes from. So James Hamilton, who uh, is believed by many to be the father, was, uh, was from Scotland. He he was the fifth, I believe, son, <clears throat> and back then, not to spend too much time on it, the oldest son gets to inherit the land, because uh, they were somewhat uh, higher up in the Scottish society as a, as, as a low-level nobility, so they had lots of land. So Hamilton, could, his father could not inherit the land because he's the fifth kid, the fifth son, so the next son would become uh, go on to the clergy, another son would go on to the military. So James Hamilton, which is Hamilton's father, winds up coming to America or coming to the Caribbean to try to be successful in business, but was basically a drunk. And his mother had been married before uh, and was not allowed to get married again. So that's why Hamilton uh, was not born and was not born into a consummated marriage. Uh, and that's why you could, for example, uh, go to the church schools in Nevis or St. Croix because uh, they were not allowed to be, uh, participate in the, uh, the Anglican schools back then. So what's the point? The point is that there are different interpretations on it is true. It is absolutely right that at one point Hamilton starts working because his father's run off, his mother dies. Hamilton starts working for this trading firm, and some have speculated that the individual who takes him under his wing, who is the landlord, and this is why you can make the connection, the landlord uh, for where his mother and Hamilton well, lived. had the keys land- to the bedroom and the hallways <laughs> and everything else. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, see, he smiles when he tries to insinuate these things, so that when I actually say them, he starts frowning like, oh, did I actually mean that? So we got a little, we got a little uh, distracted by uh, Hamilton's background, and you know, who knows? Different historians. So I think what... the la- I think the landlord got in there. Well, he put he oh. t- he took him under his wing, <laughs> taught him uh, trading and accounting, and then sent him to college. Okay, so let's leave it as a, as a surrogate dad. There you okay? go. Okay, surrogate dad. He, he was fortunate that uh, he was able to make that connection, and I think that the community in Nevis recognized this kid was a genius, that he was able to, he spoke French because his mother was a French Huguenot, so he spoke French. What's a, well, let the audience know what a, what a Huguenot is, a French Huguenot, because I don't French know. French Protestant, who were kicked out by the Catholic king, uh, Louis the Fourteenth. The French had religious wars in the 1500s, and King Henry IV uh, issued an edict of tolerance in uh, 1585 or so. But about 100 years later, Louis XIV, who was Catholic, set the heck with tolerance, so he persecuted the French Protestants, and they took off and went to England and the colonies. And, and uh, New Rochelle, New York, was settled by French Huguenots, Protestants. I can always count on you, Mr. Ed. Yeah, New Rochelle, New York. I live next to you. Google the Edict of Nantes later, and we can talk about uh, the, the yeah. Huguenots on another evening. Yeah, uh, the fr- French-speaking civilization has been going downhill since that was revoked. I'm 
sorry, it was revoked. Yeah. So, uh, so here we go. We're, we we can have the maps, and people are ready. And these are the kind of conversations people can have at the exhibit as you as you look at this wonderful, extraordinary exhibit. Okay, so I'll ask you that question live. <laughs> so we're gonna get the maps. And we've just walked into the exhibit, so now we're continuing to walk. It's on the left as you walk in. We're going to have some land grants. We're going to have, how often do you get to see a document signed by Ben Franklin? How often do you get to see a document? Oh, by the way, Adam, I played Ben Franklin in fifth grade, and I was pretty good at it. <laughs> okay, so uh, we'll, we'll try to find some way of uh, getting you to reenact some of your ben, ben Franklin lines. Yeah, I've got some velvet suits that I, I wish I could wear because you know, I weighed about 50 pounds back then. Addison oh, Land Grant. So as you're walking in, you get to see some of these old historic documents, and then you get into the. There's going to be a picture of Alexander Hamilton, which was done by one of the most famous. Uh, I won't say who it is, and maybe you can talk about that with with uh, David Wells Roth when he comes in. <clears throat> but it's because it's a Hamilton exhibit, we have to have a picture of Hamilton. So you'll get to see one of the most famous pictures of Alexander Hamilton, not the original. Oh which is, yeah. What a what a what a thrill! What a treat! Mm-hmm. So this picture that we're going to have, because we can make copies, these are not documents that have any copyrights anymore. So we're going to have a replica, a replica of one of the most famous pictures of Hamilton, which is used, by the way, as the picture on the $10 bill. So uh, everyone knows who's seen the musical, and here I'll do a little bit of rapping, you know, that Hamilton was the $10 founding father without a father, got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a self-starter. So uh, that's the $10 bill. That's Hamilton, the $10 founding father. That was good, Adam, by the way. Thank you. So once you see the picture of Hamilton, uh, then that's going to bring you into where we have the Isaiah Thomas collection. And please ask David Wells Roth, and I'm not looking at the clock, but uh, ask him, what is the connection between Hamilton, and we talked a little bit, a little bit about it, uh, but there are all kinds of ways we can, you know, the two go hand together, hand in glove, uh, that you couldn't have had one without the other, I would argue. So then what David has done, and he will go into detail talking about it, is he will lay out uh, the story of Boston and how the Revolutionary War began in Boston and uh, that printing press, Isaiah Thomas's printing press, and how the British came to arrest him, but he got out of town, and I won't give away too much of the story, uh, the night of Lexington and Concord for all intents and purposes. So you'll talk about that with David at 7.45. But now I want to talk to you about the books, which is the majority of the exhibit. So I mentioned the Molasses Act. So that from the 1730s, but now get a feel for some of these other acts and some of these books. So how often do you get to see printed copies for the king? These are very fancy calf leather binding with marbling. I don't know if you've ever looked at some of these old books back then. A book was very valuable. And these books have uh, very fancy, intricate marbling, and they have gilding on the cover. So uh, this is books are done with a very thick cotton rag paper and uh, with the leather of the binding. So you'll, you'll get to see these old statutes at large. No, but we don't get the. we can only see. We're not going to be able to, like, uh, touch or open, or you guys will decide pages for us to be able to read or not? Everything is under lock and key. In fact, uh, we're still waiting on the insurance, the proof of insurance to come in from NSU, because some of these, more than others, are, are very rare. They're all old, and they're all insured, so nobody gets to touch them. Okay. Uh, but maybe after the exhibit one is coming down, uh, we can have a conversation. But uh, Let's, let's talk about the next book, which is the Stamp Act of 1765. So the Stamp Act is one of the books you're going to get to see. And here it's interesting to point out, because I know you guys are not big fans of taxes. So why was the Stamp Act so controversial? A, because it was a direct tax. This is the first time the British start doing a direct tax that the colonists have to pay. But also, who would have to, have to pay the stamp tax? Who and what is the stamp tax on? I want to take a shot at what stamp tax was Paper. taxing you for. Paper. Bingo. So the Stamp Act was a tax on paper. So this affected 
printers because a printer had to buy the paper and it had to have a stamp on it showing that the tax had been paid. So this affects printers. It affects what legal, what profession? I just gave away the answer. What profession uses Publishers. a lot of paper? Lawyers. Printers. It affected lawyers. Yeah, said. that was the worst thing. It affected thing. lawyers. So the lawyers are up. God bless the Stamp Act. That's the only tax I've ever liked. So no. if you want to do a will, you have to pay the tax on the stamp, not, all, not in addition to the lawyer's fees. Right? Merchants, because merchants, it's very fact-intensive and paper-intensive. Can we bring yeah. back the stamp Accounting, back? accounting. Yeah, all accounting, the ledgers. Accounts, clergy, because the clergy, you know, they need to buy books for the Bibles, and clergy writes, uh, you know, keeps notes. They, they record things. Right, so what the stamp back did is it fell upon the backs of the, the most outspoken and uh, the most influential people in the colonies. All get together, the printers, the lawyers, the merchants, yeah, the clergy. Big, big, you don't pick fights with those folks. That's, that, that's exactly what the Stamp Act did, which is the most literate and articulate section of colo the colonial public. And now I'm quoting from Arthur Schlesinger, one of the historians we like to refer to. And he goes on to say that, not surprisingly, this group formed the most literate and vocal element of the population who largely united in opposition to the Stamp Act. And in particular, newspaper printers played an important role. And newspaper printers, um, you know, that's how people got their news, right? So the people who write the news are effectively protesting these taxes. So that's the little bit of the history behind the Stamp Act, and we're going to have a copy of it. It's the Stamp Act of 1765, and when you look at the book, the way that these old law books in Britain were written is they were organized by the year of the king. So King George III comes in in 1760 is when he, his reign begins. So the Stamp Act of 1765 is in five years into his reign. So when you look at the book, if we show the, I don't think we're going to show the, 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 the spine, but the spine would say 5 George III and then the Act, which is Chapter 12. So this would be 5 George III, Chapter 12, which is the Stamp Act. So you'll get to see a copy of the notorious and famous Stamp Act. So what's the next act as you're walking through the exhibit? So right after the Stamp Act, and a lot of people don't realize this, the Stamp Act was so unpopular because they were protesting it before it even took effect. So the British gave notice that this was going to happen because he had to ramp up. They had to bring in all the paper with the stamps on it. So they had plenty of advance notice that they were going to have to start paying this, and the colonists were protesting it before it even took effect. And we can talk about how they went about protesting it. But within a year, the British repealed the Stamp Act because they realized, and Benjamin Franklin, Manny, you mentioned Franklin. Franklin happened to be in England because he was an agent for Philadelphia, for Pennsylvania, and he testifies before Parliament at the House of Commons and explains to them that you are opening up, and we can use all kinds of descriptions, but a can of hurt and a uh, whole world of troubles if you go about enforcing this tax. And Britain, its Parliament, repeals the Stamp Act within a year and we are going to have right next to it in the case the Declaratory Act of 1766. So help me with the math. If the Stamp Act was 5 George III and the Declaratory Act is 1776, and that's a year later, then the legal citation for the Declaratory Act would be 6 George III because it's the sixth year of his reign. So what is the name of the Declaratory Act? It's an act for the better securing the dependency of His Majesty's dominions in America upon the Crown and Parliament of Great Britain. And when you read these books, by the way, they spell things a little bit differently. They use fancy uh, lettering, and uh, they, their F and their S work differently. So you're well, it's all felt. It's all felt pen, right? It's uh, not felt tip pen, but uh, well, no, but you know, they had, they, they had printers. They had uh, yeah, but they, printing blocks. Oh, oh, okay. So yeah, that's right. That's, they, they had this uh, steel. Yeah. Okay. We, 
we do have some documents, but the the books are all printed. But even so, they have because they're very fancy because these are you know for the for the king's lawyers printed by the king's the king's printers. So you'll see how how intricate they are. And uh, what's the point? So the Declaratory Act gets repealed. But what does England declare at the same time that they repeal the Stamp Act? So with one hand they say well, we're repealing it. With the se second hand they say that nevertheless, and I'll read it to you, and you can read this for yourself when you look at the book. Uh, as long as it's enough for lighting, and I'm going to make sure we have good lighting. So Parliament declares that it still had the, quote, full power and authority to make laws and statutes of sufficient force and validity to bind the colonies and people of America in all cases whatsoever. So they repeal the Stamp Act, but they say we can do this anyway if we change our mind. So that's the Declaratory Act. It's going to be the second book you see. You, know, you want to know what the next book is? Uh, the Tea Act. There you perfect. Yep. So the next book we're going to have is the Tea Act of 1773, which is 13 George the Third, because that's his 13th year. So this is the text that and we've talked about it the prior evening. So people can go back to the website and you can see. Uh, you want to describe how we have the the podcast, Manny? Absolutely. We will. Well, basically, if you go to our website wsqfradio.com, you'll see the entire archives of Statues and Stories podcast, and you're free to share them. If you want to, uh, if you want to, like put them on your own website, then you go to our SunCloud account under Mac on the Rock. There's only one SunCloud account, so I can pretty much keep an eye on all the podcasts we do here. So you go to SunCloud account, and there it's an easier download for wanting to uh, spread the good news about what Adam does for free on your blog. So you're free to go to his blog. Um, you can come to our uh, radio station site for the podcast, and you're free to share them because, after all, this is about spreading the news of the good the good works that our family fathers have done for this country. So, again, SoundCloud forward slash Mac on the Rock for uh, uh, a downloadable version of these podcasts. Or if you just want to listen to them, then you can try to do the cut and paste on the subject line, not the subject line, on the search uh, mm -hmm. bar. On our website, wsqfradio.com forward slash statues and stories. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit more because we're running out of time and I want to give everyone a better flavor for what's coming up. So we just mentioned that we're going to have the Tea Act of 1773. And what's important about the Tea Act, and when we talked about it on prior evenings and people can go rewind and listen, the Tea Act was actually a tax cut. It was not a increase in taxes. It was a tax cut coupled with a monopoly and Britain's ham-handed policies and also some corruption and a tea monopoly. But it was actually a tea cut. I'm sorry, a tax cut. So what does Arthur Schlesinger say about the Tea Act? And he says that he attributes much of the success of the Boston Tea Party, because that's what precipitates uh, throwing the tea in Boston Harbor. And so here's the quote from Arthur Schlesinger. He says, much of the success of the Tea Party was, to, it was due to the intricate and infinite craft and resourcefulness of the uh, Dux Ex Machina, Sam Adams. So Sam Adams and John Hancock were these smugglers, and they're uh, sort of uh, beating the drums about how we have to resist the, uh, the horrible Tea Act and, and uh, these policies the British are putting in place, what's the next act that we're going to have next to it, I believe? And the quick answer is, um, what, what does Britain do once you have the Tea Act and once you have the tea protests in Boston? I can only think they would have some kind of to a tobacco act. So what Britain does, and you're right, they need to raise money, but uh, they decide that we don't like what's happening here, which is the, the spark of a revolution, and that gets back to Isaiah Thomas, who's printing all these inflammatory newspaper articles criticizing the British. So the British decide they're going to come down hard and make an example of Boston, and they pass five acts. These are called the Intolerable Acts, or they're also called the Coercive Acts. 
So they shut down Boston Harbor. That's the Boston Harbor Act. And they revoke independence from Massachusetts. They take away the charter. So that way the royal governor now controls Massachusetts, and you can't have any uh, local town hall meetings anymore without the permission of the governor. They pass the Quartering Act, so they make it easier for the troops and the inflamed people with the Quartering Act. So they, they pass five intolerable acts. They pass another act that deals with trials, that if you're on trial, you're not going to be before a colonial jury anymore. You're going to be before a, a royal court, and you're going to be tried in Canada. They, they uh, pass the Quebec Act. So how does Hamilton... Wow, that was a new one. Yeah, that, so that, that the quarter... Acts, we've got copies of the Intolerable Acts. Good. So one that we have is the Quebec Act. And why are we featuring the Quebec Act of 1774? Because a young Alexander Hamilton, remember, he comes to America because he got the scholarship. He had written about the hurricane, and his hurricane essay was written in such vivid language and talked about the skies opening up and then the, the quiet. And that's one of the songs in the musical. So, uh, so the second time that Hamilton gets widespread popularity with his essays being published all around the colonies... Is because he writes about the the former refuted essays. He attacks the the British intolerable acts, and he goes after the Quebec Act. And here's a quote for you: that the young Alexander Hamilton was gaining acclaim as the author of the former refuted, publishes his critical commentaries of the Quebec Act on June 15th, and he does several essays that get published. So Hamilton writes about and challenges and criticizes the Quebec Act of 1774. Uh, the next book we're going to have is the Prohibitory Act. So what does England do once the colonies really start uh, protesting and the other colonies don't decide to step up and help Britain, the other colonies unite with Boston, and they all start. And the other act I didn't mention was the Boston Harbor Act. If I didn't mention it, which no, you did, you yeah, did. You did. Okay, puts an embargo around Boston, so you know this would starve for the people of Boston. So mm -hmm. what do the other colonies do? They start sending food and produce and supplies to Boston by land. So mm -hmm. the colonies, you know, hear the message is: if you're going to try to repress the freedom of a of a city or a population, be careful that you don't uh, boomerang and just make them heroes. So Boston becomes the heroes of independence, the spirit of 1776. So what? the Prohibitory Act of 1775, and this is England's, I'm referring to it as England's virtual declaration of war after Lexington and Concord. So after, and David will talk with you about this, and the, the role that Isaiah Plant Thomas plays, because you have to have the newspaper publishers writing about Lexington and Concord. So after Lexington and Concord, what did the British do? And the Continental Congress, and if you've watched some of the stories about John Adams, uh, they passed what's called the Olive Branch Petition. So the Continental Congress, there are some who are radicals, there are some that are conservatives, they all agree, let's offer um, a way for Britain to end this without having it spiral out of control. That's the Olive Branch Petition. And the British shoot down the Olive Branch Petition, and they respond with the Prohibitory Act of 1775. And I want to read this to you. This is what John Adams says when the British pass the Olive Branch, when the British pass the Prohibitory Act, which is an embargo now on all of the colonies. So this is an act of war, an act of economic warfare on all the colonies. And let me read you what Adams says. And remember, Adams wanted independence. He realized it was inevitable. But Adams realized we had to take baby steps. We can't just declare independence all at once. We have to build up to it. So this is Adams' reaction when he sees the Prohibitory Act of 1775, which we have on display. This is what he says. He says, and this is written in, you know, the Boston accent, make believe I'm John Adams reading this. So uh, it throws the 13 colonies out of royal protection, levels all distinctions, and makes us independent in spite of all of our supplications and entreaties. So what Adams is saying is that uh, he was waiting uh, to sever allegiance with George III, and he considered the act, here's the quote, the complete dismemberment of the British Empire that effectively makes us independent seven months before the Declaration of Independence. So the, in John Adams' mind, when the British 
Bush passed the Prohibitory Act that was effectively the Declaration of Independence for America, which we hadn't yet written, because that's how horrible and how significant that act was, the Prohibitory Act of 1775. Yeah, it was a shot now, across the brow, oh, no doubt. Say that again? Yeah, that it was the shot across the bra- the the bow. I mean, embargoing all the colonies. That's insane. Yeah, but you're going to get to read the Prohibitory Act was intended to hobble the American economy with a wartime embargo, prohibited all trade with any country, period. That's how the British reacted to Lexington and Concord. So what are the next acts? Absolutely. Bring out the muskets, man. That was Lord North, Prime Minister. It all started because they messed with the attorneys with a stamp act. Can you believe that? No, it was because they tried to take our guns. Let that be a warning. Let that be a warning. Continue. All right, so these were... British acts. We've been talking about British acts. Now we're going to get to the first act of the first Congress. So we're now skipping ahead to 1789, and we talked about this in one of our prior episodes with the first Congress, which opened in 1789 in New York. So does anyone remember what the first act of the first Congress was in 1789? And remember, they were very practical, and they took, as I said, baby steps. They they were very logical. Rather than passing something monumental, they had to do what first? What was the first act? Was it the post office? No. No, so close. I think we may have talked about what the oath act. So, oh, what the, the oath was going to be? The oath for the president, but that's oh, that's right. Okay, so more sublime, more important, but more sublime. I was trying to be like really inconsequential, but that one definitely is. I thought it was going to be something like uh, tariffs and duties to fund the federal government. That comes very shortly thereafter. Okay. But the first act, which was easy to do, set forth the exact act. Yeah, the oath. And you'll be able to see it in the book. I insert your name. So AB is how they call it. I AB to solemnly swear or affirm, as the case may be, that I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Quakers. And there were several Quakers in the from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, so that was the original of uh, the oath. So you'll get to see the oath act. And uh, from there, by the way, uh, these are the think about it. These are the acts of the first Congress. I mean, these books that you're going to get to see are history in the making. These are same idea, the cat leather binding, and, uh, and these are monumental once you hear some of the bills that we're going to get to see. So the next bill we're going to have, the next, the next act, or law, which these are statutes, is the Residence Act of 1790. Let me throw out some information to you. We know from prior discussions how this is Hamilton's grand compromise. What is the capital move from New York to Philadelphia? And this is a famous dinner that takes place on June 20th, 1790, at Jefferson residence in New York City, and it's not fair for me to ask you this, I'll ask it anyway. Anyone want to take a guess in the financial district, and I know you'd lived there for a while, Ed, what the location of where Jefferson's house was when he had this famous dinner with Hamilton and with Madison? Across the street. No, near Francis Tavern. So uh, we can talk about Francis Tavern. Uh, there were other important meetings, but it's 57 Maiden Lane. Okay. And we started that as a clothing company, right? Maiden Lane. Yeah. But, uh, so Maiden Lane is the address of where Jefferson's residence was. Yeah. That's and near that's Federal Hall. Happened. That's one of the other songs. From and the, the street Eastern still exists? Or? Yeah, it's still there. It's a Dutch. It was the Dutch uh, from the Dutch days. Maiden okay. Lane. Yeah. yeah, the Dutch Indian Company. So I don't know if that same house is around, but that address, Maiden Lane, 57 Maiden Lane, that's where the the big compromise, the horse trading, took place to move the capital from New York. So Hamilton had to give and take uh, to Philadelphia for 10 years, and that's what gave them the time to build up Washington, D.C., which at the time was just a swamp. And, and now it's there. gone back to being a swamp. <laughs> So let me give a couple more samples of what's going to be in the exhibit, because I know that uh, David Wells-Roth will be on in about five minutes. And guys, is there any way that we could do a conference with him? If he has me on the line, will that work, or we won't be able to hear each other? No, uh, you guys won't be able to hear each other. 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll hang up in five minutes. So let me just rattle off some of the names. The Funding Act, and this is for Ed. This is the act of the first piece of Hamilton's financial plan. You're going to get to see the Funding Act. You're going to get to see Jay's Treaty of 1795, which is the second volume of the acts of the first Congress. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it's not the first Congress. It's, uh, it's the uh, 1795 wouldn't have been the first Congress. But uh, you're going to get to see Jay's Treaty. You're going to get to see the Coinage Act of 1792, which was, who was the Secretary of Treasury? that puts in place Hamilton. the first coinage. Hamilton. That's why this is a Hamilton exhibit. You're going to get to see the Coinage Act of 1792. And uh, we've got an Indian treaty, the Indian Non-Intercourse Act of 1796, which was a good faith but inadequate effort to protect Native Americans. So Washington and Henry Knox and Hamilton made an effort to try to protect Indian rights and Indian land, but because they weren't enforcing it, we know what happened there, which is a very sad story, an unmitigated calamity. And here I'm quoting from Joseph Ellis. So you're going to get to see one of the first treaties, which was a treaty with the Native Americans. American tribes. Then I think the most important act from the first Congress, and I'll let you pick what this one was. So the first Congress, it was a promise that effectively they made in Virginia and some of the other states in order to ratify and to get get us over that nine state threshold in order to get the Constitution ratified. They had to promise that we're going to add what to the Constitution? Well, the Bill of Rights. No, Article 5. Oh, the Bill of Rights. Article 5 was already in there. Yeah. You're going to get to see a copy of the Originally, there wasn't 10, it was 12. You're going to get to see all 12 of the original amendments that were proposed, because remember, the process was to go through Congress, and we could talk about how there are other ways to get amendments through the Constitution. The the original Bill of Rights will be seen right there. You could see it. You'll be able to see it in a book, because it's the book containing the laws of the first Congress. So this is the proposal for the Bill of Rights that Congress adopted and then sent to the states. Now, were there several copies of this, or is this the only copy? So, you know, we know that the National Archives in Washington, D.C. has has the, the uh, presuming the original copy, but this is the, what what they would do with every session of Congress. They would take all the laws that were adopted and they would publish them. So this is the published copy, and it's the first published copy. And one of these days I'll talk to you about one of my heroes, Zephaniah Swift, who was the publisher. He was a Federalist, and when he left Congress, uh, he was able to convince them to pass a law authorizing the publishing of the laws, because the laws don't mean anything unless people have them. Absolutely. And now, is this in statutes at large is today? So statutes and stories? Today we call it, that's right, statutes at large. Back then it was called the Laws of the United States of America, okay. and it was printed in three volumes, volume one, two, and three. And uh, as much as I would have loved this to be 1787 or 1789, uh, the, the three-volume edition, which was the first official publication of the Laws of the First Congress, was printed by Zephaniah Swift in 1780, I'm sorry, 1797. So we have the 1796 and 1797 copy of the Laws of the First, Second, and Third Congress. Wow. Okay. So you're going to get, I mean, and you'll ask how many copies were made, and um, maybe I'll talk about that if someone gives me the question. And there's some debate about how many copies were made, but they made copies for every member of Congress got a copy, every senator got a copy. Um, they sent copies to the at the time 13 and then 14 and 15 states, so they would send the copies of the of the of these laws 
in the bound volumes which we have to uh, to the different states. So they they made um, less than five thousand copies, and we have copies of the laws of the first Congress. So some other acts, as I know, are coming up on uh, go time for for David Wells Roth, but the Carriage Act, and I want to talk to you about the Carriage Act, the Alien and Sedition Act. I'll just run through some of the names. The Judiciary Act, which is the act for midnight judges and Madison and Marbury, Madison and uh, wasn't Marbury, the. Uh, what the, didn't the Carriage Act actually end up in the Supreme Court? There was a, a tremendous controversy about the tax related to the uh, new carriages being manufactured. Didn't that make it to the Supreme Court? Many, not only did it make it to the Supreme Court, but the case was argued by Alexander Hamilton, who got a unanimous decision. So you're going to get to see the first case that was argued by Hamilton before the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was the first time that a tax was held constitutional. It was the first time that there was a challenge. How's that? A challenge to the constitutionality of a tax, and you will get to see the Carriage Act of 1794. Let me give you three more examples. And you get to see it in my book when you stumble upon it. Right, so once this exhibit is finished, I'm going to be doing uh, some editing and reviewing. I'm very much looking forward to it. So let me give you three more examples. The Judiciary Act of 1781. Let me skip ahead a little bit. We also have some more recent acts. And when I say more recent, the Cumberland Road Act. So some acts when Jefferson was president. The Louisiana Purchase. We're going to have the act uh, from 1803. How often do you get to see a book here? It was published in 1805 after that Congress, uh, when the Louisiana Purchase got adopted. I remember it was negotiated in 1803, but it takes time for it to get approved. So you're going to get to see from the 7th, uh, take it back, the 8th Congress. The 8th Congress is the Louisiana Purchase. And one more, let me mention, a civil war. So I won't say what they are, but just imagine what are some of the most important pieces of legislation from the Civil War, and you're going to get to see it at this exhibit. So that summarizes the books that are on exhibit. But now, as we pass the gavel to my good friend David Wells Roth, he will be describing, uh, uh, with a little bit of a Boston accent, he's going to be describing the um, immense amount of time he spent to do the, the art, because he's a, a trained, and ask him about his art career, ask him about his training, ask him the time he spent in Europe. But he's based out of Boston, and he is the premier revolutionary War artist, and we're going to have, because he was generous enough to let us have it alone, uh, some of his art from Boston at Nova Southeastern University on September 17th. And I should point out that we're fortunate to keep him in town for a week. And he wow, will so he'll be there every day. So the audience yeah. knows they have the whole week to come see all this stuff. So take some time uh, starting on November the 17th, man, go out to uh, Nova Southeastern University. And if you're an immigrant in this country, take your children, let you. Let them know that you've arrived in the in the greatest country in the world that has really started its history with such a profound manner in such an orderly way. It's uh, quite impressive. I'm very proud to say that I am born in a, the <laughs> USA. Born in Alfred Sherman Library at the Norva Southeast University. So I'm about to hang up. The last thing I wanted to say is that David will be giving a speech. So my speech is on the 17th of March this month, and he will be doing a talk, a presentation on the 24th, also at 2 o'clock. And he will be walking you through the exhibit, uh, talking about the art that he does, and about um, he also has a book coming up. So ask him about the book that he has coming out. And I'm saying goodnight to everybody, and uh, David should be calling in shortly. Thank well, you very thank, much. I, we can't thank you enough. It's uh, uh, quite an, an honor and a pleasure to have someone to stumble upon in our lives to give us so much information so, so, out of the kindness of your heart. Yeah, so thank you very much. Learned Council. There you go, Learned Council. Learned Council, that's what we call it. I give a warm and fuzzy departure and you give the, the stale Absolutely. clerk Lurid Council. Clark. God.
Unbelievable. So this has been an exciting night, man. But um, all uh, all our all our guests have been rock solid. I think I like to call Adam basically the host of this show because mm-hmm. when it comes to statues and stories, yep. we just had a little bit of flim flam, you know, color here and there. Every once in a while, I have a strike of genius as <laughs> I've done twice today. Absolutely, you're on a roll. I'm on a roll. Have you been reading up on this history stuff? Well, the when I made mention of the Carriage Act, right? When I made mention of the T Act. Uh, that was part of my book. My book makes statements. Yeah. Uh, uh, why? Why? Certain things happened that led to certain things that we've completely ignored. There you go. So you're going to introduce the, the fine painter when he answers. Yeah, absolutely. This is Statues and Stories on WSQF 94.5. You're live on FM radio to potentially 160,000 people. Please let us know who we're speaking with. David Wells Ross. Well, David, thank you very much for calling, and welcome to the uh, Statues and Stories portion. Now, as I understand it... Well, you're, you're Ed Vidal, and well, I'm Mac. Uh, I'm Ed Hi, Vidal, and we have Mac on the Rock. Mac on the Rock. And I'm I want our audience to know here. that you are an, a Boston-based artist. Correct. And you uh, uh, focus on the American Revolution, is that right? Well, in this uh, particular group of paintings, yes. Uh, that's not my primary focus to my career, but I was commissioned about uh, 20 years ago by the restaurant called the Union Oyster House Restaurant in Boston. Great. Which is it's America's oldest surviving restaurant and, and continually running restaurant. And uh, so they commissioned me about 1995 to to paint a series of paintings about their history and uh, and what was what was going on on their on their land, essentially their their domain what? during the time of the revolution. Right. Well, what was your area? Were you a general uh, painter before that, or yeah? Why did they yeah. commission you? Oh yeah. Well, um, because I'm a realistic painter, and uh, and my my work is classically trained. So it would it would fall very very neatly into their into their designs what they wanted to see. Plus, uh, you being an, uh, a native of Boston, I, I no no. But you're you're saying that it's help. realistic as opposed to expressionist or uh, that abstract. Or abstract. Okay, got and, uh, it. Yeah, I've been I've been drawing and painting since uh, oh god, I did my first oil painting at ten. My mother was uh, an artist and she painted um, a, a bit when I was young. She also went to school. Uh, in New York, studied under uh, Robert Motherwell, who was an abstract expressionist painter. Right. And um, so, uh, but then uh, I studied under at Boston University, which is a school that was focused on realistic and classically trained art and observational painting, basically. Well, that's great. I wish their economics department were trained on uh, realistic economics, but you were in their <laughs> art department, right? Yeah, it was in the art department, painting, yeah. That's great. And, and, and then after school, I uh, moved to New York City and then focused on landscapes, cityscapes, essentially. And I did that for a couple of years. And then, uh, then I met a French family who uh, decided they wanted one of my paintings. So they, they said, well, if you give me this painting, then you need to have a place to stay at our, our place in the south of France All right. for, uh, for a couple of months. So I did that. And, uh, you know, it was very good because I was basically starving in New York City, living in my car most of the time, and it was uh, kind of difficult. So, uh, What, uh, what uh, uh, years were this? So the audience knows... what 1980 through 82. Okay. At the end of 79 through 82. And then 82, June 6th, which was D-Day, I invaded France, 
and uh, moved to the south of France, and then um, lived there. Then their family, uh, extended family in Paris, saw my work and decided they wanted to have me come up and uh, exchange prison paintings. Had an apartment there that lasted from '82 through '90, '97, actually. Oh, fantastic! So That's great. Essentially, commuting between Paris and in the States to do the Oyster House paintings. Wow, that's uh, it's amazing how we we take one step, yeah, no more, no you, less, you and the next you, step's you, revealed. That's really a great uh, career uh, path because you know I don't I wouldn't. That's great to know that people can still make uh, a living uh, as uh, realistic artists. Well, it's it's difficult. It's not. It's really not easy. I can tell you because a lot of the art today is focused on abstract. Right. And uh, you go to a lot of galleries in Florida, for example, in Miami. Oh my area, God, our basil's horrendous. <laughs> well, right. So it's that, yeah that. Um, I go hot. I had the I'm bold enough to say that uh, here on the radio that you go to Art Basel, which is a great event from the standpoint of publicity for our city. But I'm sorry, the art is horrendous. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't like to say disparaging things. Oh, please! I, I no, go it, ahead. I'm not an attorney or an artist. It's good to see right. someone doing realistic uh, yeah, art painting. I, you know, your art's going to be. We're looking forward to your exhibition and. Uh, uh, Adam, we've had a tremendous affinity for Adam, so I think it's wonderful that we get to meet you personally, and, and I really and love I, I, I really congratulate you that you have been able to survive in Boston when your uh, first two names are the names of a Yankee pitcher. <laughs> which, is, which ironically is really funny, because um, the, uh, the university put up a, a, a poster for, for this show coming up, and they forgot to put my last name, so it's David Wells. Right, so right. David Wells is giving the lecture about, and they had the picture of Daniel Webster. Oh. Thomas. <laughs> Apparently, the picture from Boston Red Sox is going to be doing a lecture about Daniel Webster, so that'll be interesting. Okay, oh my God. good luck. Is that more? Is that fake news? David or Wells, that's true. Oh, that's he, fake news. He pitched now. for the Yankees, <laughs> 98, did. yeah. Yeah, incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I'm sure they're going to make that correction probably the next couple of days. But sure. It's, it's very funny. So, but, so yeah. do I take it yeah. that since the your your art is here in South Florida, it's not at the Oyster House at this moment? Uh, no, no. These these are posters of the prints that I've okay. painted. The prints, I mean, the posters. Sorry, the paintings. The paintings are in the Oyster House. Permanent. Okay, they're, they're still there. Okay. All right, yeah. so the next time are, I'm in Boston... ...productions in posters, and, I've, and in the posters I've got explanations of all the paintings, what's going on, the action in the paintings. And uh, so basically this is just a big format where I could have the story told of, what's, of the action in the painting. And well, what, I, what, uh, what Ed uh, forgot, uh, didn't recognize is that you, uh, we have to commend you for also surviving... The south of France and Paris, because we're you know we're capitalist conservatives here oh, on conservative no. radio. So you survive France. Oh, it's a socialist country. <laughs> it's a socialist country. Well, I got to keep yeah. the theme here. Well, I want you to know that about a month ago, I went out and got one of those uh, yellow vests for my car, <laughs> in case my car breaks down. I can wear it like they do in France. Oh yeah, oh yeah. My friends are calling me up and saying, "Oh my God, this country's gone crazy." It's Seriously, and it's been a long time since you've been back to France. Well, I've I've been I go every couple of years. I was there about three years ago, and um, and I've got friends that I catch up with in relatives. In fact, when I was out there, I discovered a whole branch of my family that we never really knew existed. We knew one person, but then that that opened up the you know family of like fifty cousins, 
and uh, second and third cousins. It's just amazing. Wow. And uh, do you find yourself looking back at your career and uh, on a time on a timeline? Uh, do you feel like uh, you were more inspired by geography in terms of where you're where you're painting from, or just the general yeah. state of your life? Uh, yeah, I think so. It, it's a little bit of both, but mostly uh, geography. Um, for, uh, aside from the Oyster House, for example, that's 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 a specific uh, commission which which really inspired me to, to go into history. Uh, but uh, you know, when I was born, I was born in Florida, actually, Port Walton Beach. And we lived there till I was 10 years old. Then moved up to, to uh, New York and to Massachusetts. So I'm a native Floridian, actually. And, uh, and so I, I remember my mother used to paint the Gulf of Mexico, and I would watch her paint and, and hang by her, and it was a lot of fun. And I really got to know painting at that time. So I became more or less a landscape painter as a result of that. And then, uh, then I was inspired to paint cities when I lived in New York City. My parents were both from the Bronx originally. And so I've got a lot of New York in me. And then we moved up to Boston, and I lived there from, like, 10 o'clock, I mean, 10, 10, age 10 until, until, uh, until I moved to France and New York. Now, France, you're already an adult on your own, basically. Sorry? That w once you get this opportunity in France, you're basically a, a young adult, I suppose. Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. I was 25 when I moved to Paris. Wow, and uh, uh, what kept you from, uh, are you married to a Parisian, or are you... Uh... Well, I, I came very close to marrying this woman, Isabel, and, uh, and you know, it was a kind of rocky relationship. She's an actress and a writer. Oh, my and, God, two uh, artists going at it. Yeah, yeah the, the typical artist relationships. And, uh, but she, she made it to stardom, absolute stardom. And, you know, you could look her up, Isabel Mergault, M-E-R-G-A-U-L-T. She, she made it to the top of the top. And uh, she's, she's an actress doing plays right now all over France on tour. And, and we, we remain extremely close friends now. And uh, so, yeah, that was, I almost got married. <laughs> very... Okay. Uh, you're actually a, a visionary and a scholar, quite frankly. Because, you know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a divorcee, so I know... I so I know great philosophy and painters when I when I hear it, and you are definitely oh. that. You, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and you know, Ed, notice he doesn't say a word because he's been married for so long. Oh yeah. Oh, lucky guy. <laughs> well, I'm actually seeing a girl right now. Uh, she's she's unfortunately driving, so she can't listen to it. Her name is Sunny. She's from she's from Beijing, and uh, so I'm. I'm uh, and also, and also an artist so. or no? Sorry, what was that? Uh, also an artist. Uh, you know, she 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 draws, and uh, she she was doing industrial design in college, and then uh, raised a kid, and then divorced. But um, but I taught her to paint, so she really caught on. She within like three years, she was painting a hundred paintings. It's well, just oh my God, that's that uh, Asian discipline, amazing. That, absolutely, yeah. Isn't, that, isn't it amazing how important beautiful. culture is? Yeah, sorry. It's so important that culture applies to all things human. But when Absolutely. you have a culture that's studious and disciplinary, yeah. you can see how someone learns fast and then cranks out a hundred paintings. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it is amazing. And and uh, you know, her work her work is, is really beautiful. It's a general Chinese background and a little bit mixed with the uh, Western art. But um, but she caught on really quickly. And I I I've got her set up for her first show at a at a local library out here. So she's going to do that next year, and uh, it'll be interesting. Well, well, David, now that we're talking about wives and significant others, my wife has just emailed to me or texted that she knows uh, someone who does uh, 
historical fiction novels, mm-hmm. and he's a self-publisher. Oh. He's very successful, and she's going to see about putting you guys in touch because he may need a an illustrator or some or no, no, something. I'm kidding. I just finished illustrating a book uh, for somebody in Norway, as a matter of fact. Sure. And uh, literally this week, and um, now we're, we're we're trying to get it put into into paperback and then Amazon. Uh, but yeah, this, that's interesting. Absolutely, send her over. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much. I can't. I can't wait to meet you. It's. Uh, it's going to be quite. Uh, since I'm a first generation American Cuban, and uh, well, all this. Welcome. Yeah, all this uh, wonderful opportunities have come literally via community radio. I would have never had these experiences otherwise. So I take it very seriously, and yeah. I'm very fond of uh, your contribution. Let, so thank l- you very much. Let me give well, you a name. You we'll s- we'll send you a name. This was a lot of fun, and I, I hope we can do it again. Yeah, right. absolutely. I have to say, I was nervous as hell. I spent all my days in the studio, quiet, painting. I don't have any social interaction except for certain times, like with friends. But I was nervous as hell. But this is, you guys are great. And this is very relaxing, and I feel good. You yeah, radio, radio has a certain quality to it that uh, I hope will reign supreme because it, it gets stale when it turns into only podcasts, which is the normal lexicon. But hey, right. live radio still exists, and you're listening to WSQF 94.5, are the end yep. of our statues and stories. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. I Thank look forward you. to meeting you guys. You, you bet. bet. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. All right. That was great. That was David Wells Booth. Roth, rather. Roth. Uh, David Wells, of course, is the name of a Yankee pitcher, and David Wells Roth is a realistic, classically trained painter, and he makes a living as a painter, and that's great. Yeah, one of his big contracts is at the Union Oyster House in Boston. I was looking up their menu. They look like they have good clam chowder. Uh, and he will be, his work will be shown at the Nova Southeast University exhibit uh, for Alexander Hamilton. It will be taking place starting on Sunday, March 17th at the Alfred Sherman Library second floor of the Nova Southeast University campus in Broward County, Florida. Thank you very much, folks. See you later. Uh, Once again, the executive producer of this show is Mr. Ed. WSQF, Key Biscayne, Miami Beach, and Miami. Blink Radio.